Good morning, Grace Toronto. Uh, I'd ask you to please bring your conversations to a close. I um, want to welcome you to our, our Sunday service, especially if you're visiting with us uh, for the first time. A special welcome to you. Um, we now come to the point of our service where we get to uh, dive into God's Word, and we get to read it, and we get to learn from it. And, um, and if you haven't been with us, uh, we, we've been going through um, the book of Exodus, and we've been working our way. Uh, we're kind of jumping around a little bit, so you may notice if you are here last week, we were in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, this week, we're in Exodus chapter 6. Uh, next week, we're in Exodus chapter 12. Uh, so I'm going to try this morning to uh, help us uh, bridge some of the gaps and kind of locate where we are in the story. Um, so what has happened since Exodus chapter 3? Well, if you may recall, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses encountered the I Am. He encountered Yahweh God in the burning bush on, the, on Mount Sinai. And um, if you're an Israelite, things have actually gotten uh, quite a bit worse since then because Moses comes back with a message of hope. He comes back saying that God has seen their suffering. Uh, he's heard their cries. Uh, Moses then performs miraculous signs for the people of Israel to prove that God is with him. He goes and he confronts Pharaoh, <clears throat> and Pharaoh says, I don't know this Yahweh God. I don't know his name. I don't recognize his power. No, I will not let your people go. And so as punishment, he says, now I'm going to make your labor even worse. I'm going to get you to build bricks, but I'm not going to give you any straw. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Egypt or seen pictures of Egypt. There's not a lot of straw to begin with, so it's just, it's just really, really hard labor now. And so uh, the people of Israel at the end of chapter 5, including Moses, are crying out, and they're, they're saying, why? Moses says, uh, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Moses is talking to God here. Why did you do evil to this people? Why did you send me? You have not delivered your people at all. And so let's just pause here for a moment, and let's just sit in this this point we're at in the story, sit in the shoes of the Israelites. How are you feeling right now about your circumstances? You're feeling discouraged. You're feeling disillusioned. Even Moses, who just a few chapters ago encountered the living God, even Moses is having his doubts. And so we end chapter 5 asking, why? Why God? And so today we're going to look at God's response to the why and to read our passage this morning once again, Joel Faber. <clears throat> Reading from Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. 
I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke this to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Joel. Let me just pray before we begin. Father God, be with us this morning as we approach this text. Speak to us through this text. Help me to preach this text well. Um, sustain me. Uh, God, we pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears to hear what it is you have to say to us this morning. So be here with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beyonce. Drake. Shakira. Gretzky. Gandhi. Plato. What's in a name? It seems to me that some of the most iconic and influential people of our day, of ancient days, are often known by just one name. Whether in entertainment, philosophy, sports, world politics, a name is not just a name, but carries with it a legacy and carries with it a story. This morning, we're going to see that God himself has a name. And the story and the legacy attached to it, well, that's why we're going through the book of Exodus. See, the Exodus is the single greatest event in the history of the people of Israel. It is phase one of the MCU. It is episode four or episode one of Star Wars, depending on who you ask. It's the Hobbit to the Lord of the Rings. It's foundational for everything about who Israel is and would become. And all of this hinges on a name. And so this morning, we have three sections of the text we're going to look at. Uh, This outline is not going to win any awards. We have the name of God, we have the promises of God, and we have the response of the people. Those are our three points this morning. So the name of God. Well, God begins first by announcing to Moses that now... In the present, this is verses one and uh, verses one. Yep, he will he will witness Moses and the people of Israel will witness what God will do to Pharaoh. That not only will the Israelites be freed from the land from the land of Egypt, but that Pharaoh will actually be so compelled that they will actually be expelled or driven out of the land. And this is what the next six to seven chapters are about. Um, God continues in verses two and four. We have a summary essentially of the book of Genesis, from Genesis 12 or Genesis 15 onward, where God makes a covenant with Abraham, the father of the Israelite people. And he continues to renew that covenant with each successive generation. And what is that covenant? 
That covenant is, among other things, a promise to Abraham's descendants that eventually they will inhabit the land of Canaan. It will be their land to live in and to call home. Now, if you are a Bible nerd like myself and you've read the entire book of Genesis, when you read these first few verses, you notice a problem right away. And what is that problem? Well, the problem is in the latter half of verse 3, God says, I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai, but by my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So here's the problem. Because multiple times in Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob use the name Yahweh. So what does it mean for God to say that up until this point that he did not make his name known to them? Well, scholars debate this, as scholars love to do, and there are lots of different positions. Uh, But from what I can tell, the majority position on this is that while God's name was revealed to the patriarchs, the fullness in the nature and the significance of it was not yet fully grasped. Why? Because the promise had not yet been fulfilled. In fact, it wasn't fulfilled. It wasn't fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime or Isaac's or Jacob's. It would be fulfilled much later. And so they got the name, but they didn't get the legacy and the story. But here in Exodus, and indeed, if we track through the rest of the Bible, knowing God's name, Yahweh, is not just being familiar with a title. To know the name is to know his character, is to know his reputation, to know what he has accomplished for his people. If you have spent any time walking around uh, the city, downtown Toronto, you'll notice that there's uh, various monuments throughout the city. Um, I used to walk by uh, the Skydome Rogers Center every morning when I used to work in that area, and I would pass by the statue of Ted Rogers. Uh, And it's a statue of Ted Rogers, and it says on the little stand, um, the best is yet to come. Um, And so this is what monuments are, right? They're the name, Ted Rogers, but also something about that person. So I think we're supposed to look at that statue of Ted Rogers and think, okay, he was, you know, he was kind of like a visionary or something. I don't know. Maybe he envisioned us paying a ridiculous amount for our cell phone bills. Um, (laughs) The best is yet to come. Um, And so, so it's a monument, and it has a name and has significance. And that's what the book of Exodus is. It is a literary monument for every generation of Israelites to the name Yahweh. It is their origin story as a people. Um, And so to know God's name, to know Yahweh, God, is to know the God who heard their cries, is to know the God who would judge the Egyptians through signs and wonders, to know the God who would ultimately free the people of Israel and bring them into the land to possess. And so if you want a fun homework activity this week, I would say just read through the entire book of Exodus, which you should hopefully be doing with us as we we go through this series, Um, and just just highlight or underline or count how many times God's name appears throughout the book of Exodus. Um, it's, it's everywhere. It's from cover to cover. Um, it runs straight through the entire book. Exodus is all about the name of God. And so verse 3, for God to say, I didn't fully make my name known, is a, it serves essentially as a way for God to say, you ain't seen nothing yet. You might have known the name as a title, but you're about to see and you're about to experience and know the name in a whole other dimension. Grace Toronto, if you're here this morning and you are asking why, like Moses, the first part of how God answers that is he says, look at me, look at my personhood. Know me by my name. See, the beginning of salvation starts with knowing God, and to know God, you need to know his name. 
You cannot have a meaningful relationship with someone if you don't know their name. So you must know God's name. Later on, Israel is going to find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. And it's the same mountain, as you may recall, that Moses encountered God in the burning bush. And it's where the people of Israel are going to enter into a covenant relationship with God. They're going to become people of the name. And part of that covenant is that God has commands for them to follow, for their own benefit and for their own flourishing. Um, You may recall uh, the famous Ten Commandments. This is in Exodus chapter 20. Um, The third commandment, after two commandments primarily about worship, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. The third command, you shall not take the name in vain. Which, when I was growing up uh, in, in church, I always understood that to be like, don't swear using God's name. Um, but that's actually not what this command means at all, as, as I've actually recently learned. In fact, this command could actually be better translated as you shall not bear or lift up the name incorrectly. And so the question is, well, what does that mean? The high priest of Israel, who is the one who represents all of the people, wears a golden plate on his forehead. This is now Exodus chapter 28, the high priestly garments. And do you know what's inscribed on that gold plate? Holy to Yahweh. See, the high priest physically bears or lifts up the name on his forehead. Uh, Biblical scholar Dr. Carmen Imes wrote an entire book about this. She has been uh, an incredible help to me as I've come to understand the book of Exodus. Uh, She wrote a book called Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. Highly, highly recommend it if you want to do a deep dive in this. But she talks about the name as a tattoo for Israel. She says that the name marks the Israelite with an invisible tattoo as a permanent member of God's people. Invisible to the Israelite, but visible to the surrounding nations through their conduct and through their character. In other words, for Israel to bear the name is for them to represent God well in the way that they worship, in the way that they conduct themselves as a nation. It was supposed to be a natural outflow, a natural response to how God had delivered them out from Egypt and set them up in the land. And so what does this actually mean for us? What does it mean to look Uh, What does it mean for us to to bear God's name well? Well, it turns out that actually the New Testament has a lot to say about this. Uh, We can think about the Lord's Prayer, which uh, most of us probably know by heart, which has echoes of Exodus throughout it. Jesus begins and says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Because to keep the name hallowed or holy, set apart, means not just to revere the name, but to recognize that it is the name above all names. And so we pray, as Jesus prayed, that the name would be kept holy. A little later in Jesus' ministry, John chapter 17, uh, a passage that's come to be known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's a beautiful passage, John 17. It's worth uh, meditating on. He says in it, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of this world. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. See, the apostles and the disciples are now living representatives of the name. And by extension, so are we as the church. We too are unified because we are all people of the name. Just as the Father and Son are one, so too are God's people.
If we go just a little bit further into the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested because they're disturbing the peace and they are preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And Peter goes before the leaders of Jerusalem and he says, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no other name by which we must be saved. Salvation begins with knowing God's name. If you're here this morning and you're exploring the faith, you're trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, um, thank you for being here, honestly. Um, we, are, we are truly honored as a church to be part of your, your spiritual journey. And I want to talk to you this morning that the Bible is explicitly clear that there is only one name that saves. It is not Allah, it is not Buddha, it's not Caesar, it's not Trump. There's only one name. There's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and it is the name of Jesus. And so you might have many questions about the faith. Uh, I think we all do as Christians, don't we? Um, no, nobody has it all figured out. But it all begins with knowing and calling on the name. And you can do this this morning. You can know and call upon Jesus' name. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he gets it. <laughs> Paul writing in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, he says of Jesus, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's no wonder that Paul can also write in the book of Romans that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because to call upon the name is not just to say the name out loud. It's to understand everything that we've been talking about so far. It's, it's to know God personally. It's to know who he is. It's to know his character. It's to know the legacy and the story. It's to know that God made a way for that relationship to be possible through the death and resurrection of his son, and then for us to live and bear the name well. Uh, earlier this month, if you were here, we elected new elders, which is really exciting. Um, and Dan said something that I thought was so profound. He said um, to, to the elders, he said, when I look at myself, I see my sin, but when I look at you, the elders, I see Jesus. That's what it means to bear the name. <laughs> When the other nations looked at Israel, they were supposed to see not just another nation, they were supposed to see Yahweh, God. Grace Toronto, when the world looks at us, what do they see? I hope that it isn't just the elders who bear the name of Jesus well. I hope that it should be true of every member of this church, that we bear Jesus' name well. Look at your own life. Whose name do you bear? Are we more interested in lifting up our own name, our own reputation, making a name for ourselves at work, in our families, our various social circles. We want to carve out some kind of reputation for ourselves in this life. Uh, you know, there's another story about people making a name for themselves that comes from Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. And the great sin of the people at the Tower of Babel was that they said in their pride, come, let us make a name for ourselves. See, making a name for yourself might give you temporary pleasure and benefits in this life. But at the end of the age, there's only one name that will be praised. And it will be praised by every tribe and tongue and nation, willingly or unwillingly. And it is the name of Jesus. 
Church, know the name. Call on the name. Bear the name well. God's promises. We continue on in God's speech, and uh, you know, he brought up the past, that he appeared to the patriarchs, and now he moves to the present. And he says, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel. I have remembered my covenant. Now, when God says that he remembered the covenant, it begs the question, well, if he remembered, did he forget about his covenant? Because typically, in my experience, if I say to my wife, I remembered to do the dishes, the pretext is that I often forget. I have a long history of forgetting. You can ask her. And so it seems like God has forgotten Israel, doesn't it? Things have gotten worse, unimaginably worse, working as a slave under a cruel pharaoh. Many of you know, recently, uh, I became a father, and if you see a baby girl being passed around in this section of the church, like a hot potato, that's my daughter. And, um, and she thinks in her, her very short and limited perspective as a baby that I forget her all the time. Right? Sometimes I have to put her down uh, and grab something in the next room, and sooner or later she starts crying because she thinks I've forgotten her. Uh, at night she wakes up hungry, and alone in a dark room, and she cries, wondering, have mom and dad forgotten about me? Have they forgotten about me? Of course not. Of course not. We could never. (laughs) We could never forget. But it sure feels that way until there's action. Until I bring that bottle of milk, and I pick her up, and I comfort her. It's the same with God. See, Israel is God's firstborn son, Exodus chapter 4, 22. He has not forgotten Israel. And so when we read in the Bible that God remembers something, remembers his people, remembers his covenant, what it means is buckle up because God's about to do something incredible, something unforgettable, something unimaginable. In Genesis 8, God remembers Noah and his family. And upon remembering, he dries up the water. The ark comes to rest and Noah and all of creation can repopulate and fill the earth. Here in our passage, God remembers the covenant. So what is he going to do about it? Let's look at verses 6 to 8. I'm going to read it again because it's just so beautiful and so powerful. I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. If you count them, there are seven I wills in this passage. That's on purpose. Uh, Seven in Hebrew is a significant number. It's a number that signifies completeness or perfection. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to completely and perfectly fulfill these promises that I made to your ancestors. Scholars have noted um, that uh, uh, the I will statements uh, in the Hebrew are in the perfect tense, not the future tense, which tells us that the certainty of these promises were to be viewed as if they had already been completed. 
When God says, I will, it's as good as saying it is done. So let's look at each of these promises. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. We're going to see this drama playing out. And from a human perspective, maybe it looks like Pharaoh is the one to expel the Israelites. Maybe it looks like Moses is the one who's parting the sea. It is God himself who has come to rescue his people. Secondly, I will deliver you. Uh, I grew up in the 90s, and one of the best non-Disney animated films ever to be released, The Prince of Egypt. Amazing, amazing movie. Uh, even, even better soundtrack. Um, Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey on the same soundtrack. It's just like, we didn't know how good we had it, honestly. There's a song that the Israelites sing in that movie um, near the beginning as they are being uh, beaten into slave labor. And the repeated cry is, deliver us. God has heard their cry. He's coming to deliver them out of slavery and oppression. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. The miraculous acts of the plagues, the parting of the sea, these are the means by which God will redeem his people. This is the showdown between Yahweh God of the Israelites and Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. I will take you to be my people. This is the glorious reality that God is going to marry Israel in a covenant ceremony, and they will be in full covenantal relationship. God is going to bind himself, his nature, his reputation, his legacy to a people. I will be your God. Before the Ten Commandments are given, God says to Israel, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the very heart of Israel's relationship with God. It was Yahweh God who accomplished all of this for Israel. See, in a world where Israel's neighbors all worshipped multiple gods and multiple deities, Yahweh reminds them that they're only their own people because it was Yahweh who redeemed them, not the gods of Egypt, not Baal, not Asherah. It was Yahweh alone. I will bring you into the land. This is the great promise that God made to the patriarchs. He said he will bring them to Canaan and he will, he'll bring them to the land that he swore to give them. It's powerful language. It's like God is in the dock and he's placing his hand on the book and saying, I swear I will do this. That's how committed he is to his people. I will give it to you for a possession. Israel would need to do nothing else but trust God and trust that the land would be theirs to possess. It was theirs to possess by faith. So these are the promises of God to his people, but we may be thinking this morning, that's really interesting, Ryan, but what does that have to do with me? Uh, I'm not living in ancient Israel, and I'm not under the thumb of Egypt. True, you're not. But there is a different kind of slavery mentioned and described in the Bible, a slavery that no one here is exempt from. And that is a spiritual slavery to sin. The Apostle Paul says in his, letters to, in his letter to the Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in some sense, what he means is we all fail to bear the name well. In fact, we reject the name wholeheartedly. See, Israel, after they left Egypt, they had to wander through the wilderness to get to Sinai. It's a long, it's a long trek. And as they wandered, they cried out, about how good they had it in Egypt. They were like, oh, we had jars of meat and vegetables. Isn't that amazing that the people who labored and cried out for Yahweh, in just a short few days, they want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to slavery. 
Now, lest we think that it's just an Israelite problem, is that not an accurate picture of our struggle today, Christian? Because the reality is that as a Christian, you don't have all your problems solved. Rather, you have a choice. Will you continue to be in slavery to your sin, which only leads to death and misery? Or will you, as Paul says, become a slave to righteousness? That is to live as Jesus calls us in right relationship with God and with those around you. See, it is for this freedom that Christ died. This freedom to live without bondage to sin. For the wages of sin is death. And Jesus died that death so we could have life and life to the fullest. If you are a Christian this morning, the reality for you is that you have been set free, but you still have to bear the name. And every day you get to choose, are you going to stay in Egypt or are you going to go back? Sorry, are you going to stay in Egypt or are you going to follow Jesus into the land of milk and honey? Um, In three out of the four Gospels, it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have an event that is recorded that is known as the Transfiguration. Jesus goes up onto a high mountain. Once again, this has echoes of Exodus all throughout it. Jesus goes up on the high mountain with his closest disciples. He prays, and he just starts shining brilliantly, like flashes of lightning. And Moses is up there, and Elijah's up there, and Peter thinks we've got to pitch some tents because it's, it's a party. And um, it's, fasc- it's a fascinating passage. But only Luke records what Jesus and Moses and Elijah were actually talking about. This is in Luke chapter 9, verses 31. It says, They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Do you know what the word is in Greek for departure? Exodus. See, whatever Jesus accomplished in his ministry which was then to be brought to fulfillment in his crucifixion, in his burial, in his resurrection. However, all of the events in the Gospels are recorded. It would seem to me that Jesus himself understood what he was doing as no less than a new and final exodus. And it was not an exodus out of Egypt, but out of the spiritual slavery of sin. And if that is true, then these promises have significance and meaning for us today as well. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that all of the promises of God, all of the promises of God, find their yes in Jesus, which is why we, through him, utter our amen to, glory, to God for his glory. So let's look again at these seven promises, but let's look at them in light of Jesus. I will bring you out from under the burdens. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We carry so many burdens, do we not? We feel burdened when we compare ourselves to one another, to people who always seem to be one step ahead of us. We feel burdened when we look at the world around us. I've seen numerous posts on social media about uh, people saying just how everything feels broken. Do you feel that? I feel that. It weighs on our soul. The burden of sin in our own lives, in the lives of others, and how it's manifest in this city and in in and around the world My friends, you can give Jesus your burdens. He can carry it. He has brought you out from under them. Number two, I will deliver you. Just as Yahweh heard the groanings of Israel to deliver them from slavery, so too we can cry out to God to deliver us. Uh, We worship a God who hears not just the cries 
of our hearts, but through the Holy Spirit, our deepest longings, the things that we can't even express. Philippians 4, 6 to 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God will deliver you. He has indeed already delivered you by breaking the power of sin and death in his son and raising you to new life. Three, I will redeem you. To redeem in its biblical context is to purchase one's debt for freedom out of slavery. You see, the greatest redeeming act of God was not the plagues and was not the parting of the Red Sea. It was the sending of his son to take the judgment of God that we deserved. He took it upon himself and he walked through the sea of death, as it were, into new life on the other side. He purchased with his blood our freedom so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. He is our redeemer. I will take you to be my people. Those who are in Christ Jesus are a new people. A people not divided by ethnicity, not by culture, not even by gender or social status, but part of the body, the one body of Jesus Christ. Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is not male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. Five, I will be your God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, although there are may be so-called gods in heaven on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. My friends, we can set up many gods in our lives, but there is only one God worthy of our praise. Finally, six and seven, I will bring you to the land. I will give it to you as a possession. Uh, Jesus, after his resurrection, um, gives the very famous Great Commission and says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, all of creation is under my rule. According to Romans 8, we are co-heirs with Christ. Grace Toronto, the day is coming where we will inherit not just a land, but the entire cosmos, the entire new creation. And Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you and I to enter into that new creation where sin and suffering are but a distant memory, where every tear will be wiped away. Do you long for that day? I long for it. He will bring us home. Finally, the response of the people. We have to talk about this. So Moses delivers this message to the people, this gospel, this good news that God has remembered his covenant, he's going to act. And what's the response of the people? It's tragic. It's a response that's not even a response at all. It says that they did not listen. Why? Well, because of the brutality of their slavery. The Hebrew here for broken spirit can also be translated as shortness of breath. Spirit and breath are both translated from the same word in Hebrew. Maybe that's how you're feeling this morning. You're out of breath. You're exhausted. You're burnt out. You've got anxiety because you can't breathe and you don't know when you can take another breath. 
it's pretty hard to hear the comfort of God's message and God's promises if that's how you feel. It's pretty hard to hear a sermon if you're just clinging on. I have a feeling there are those here this morning who are there or very close to being there. I was very close to being there this week. Um, When I was in university, there's a book published by Francis Chan called Crazy Love. Uh, It was a hugely popular book. I'm sure many of you have have read it or have heard about it. Um, To be honest, I don't remember a ton from that book. It's been a long time since I've read it. But I do remember in the very first chapter, Francis talked about how God can just become a word or a thing common to us as Christians. His main point of that chapter was essentially, if we stop and think, think really hard about who God is, about his beauty, his majesty, his grace, his creative genius, his name, we would realize that the most important thing we could do on any day of our lives is spend time in his presence. And so if you are here and you're at the end of your rope, can I encourage you? You're not too busy to pray and spend time with God. In fact, you're too busy not to spend time to pray and spend time with him. This is our final application for us, to spend time meditating, walking through the promises of God, meditating on his name. See what he has done for his people. See what he has said he will do for you. He remembered Israel and their bondage, and he set them free. He has done the same for you in his son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the name. Thank you for the name that is above all other names and the only name that saves. Thank you that we are people of that name. Would we bear it well? Would we represent you well in this world? Would we meditate on your name and on your promises, especially in the moments when we're feeling downtrodden, especially in the moments when we feel like we can't breathe? God, help us to cling to your promises. Help us to cling to Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Rex, we have... Time for questions? Yes, we we do. We have time for uh, one question question. this morning. And um, be nice. (laughs) We're going to ask this one. Yeah. Uh, Why were the Israelites so quick to turn on God despite seeing all his miracles? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think because the Exodus gives us a portrait of ourselves, because I think the reality that we face as Christians is that we don't like the idea that we would turn from God so quickly. And it's easy, I think, for us to characterize the Israelites as, well, they, 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 just, didn't, they just didn't internalize things. They just didn't understand everything that was going on. And I don't think that's true. I think that, um, I mean, the people who wrote Exodus, Moses and the biblical authors, they belong to this people. <laughs> They're remarkably self-aware of their own flaws as a people. And so I think they turn quickly because that's what we're prone to do, right? That's what our hearts long for. Our hearts, uh, our hearts do not, by their nature, turn towards God. Our hearts often turn towards the things of this world and turn towards, uh, like I said, our, our old slave masters. We're very prone to that. And so I think, if anything, the Exodus serves as an example to us of the reality of human uh, of our humanity, the reality of what it means for sinners to come and meet a holy God. It is 
it is a messy affair. You keep reading throughout uh, Exodus into Leviticus, into Numbers, Israel just, it's, it's terrible. They continue to turn away. Um, and we're only fooling ourselves, I think, if, if we think we're somehow better than that. Uh, because I know in my own heart, I often tur- turn away from God and turn towards the things uh, that don't please him and turn, toward the, turn towards the things that I know um, I should not. And so I think it's just, it's, it's there for, to, to encourage us as well, right? Because um, the Israelites are not this super holy people who don't ever make mistakes, and neither are we, right? Um, we, we make mistakes, but we can always go to our covenant God who loves us and who cares for us, who gave his life for us in Jesus. Uh, I think that's, that's how I'll answer that. Um, worship team, you can come on up. I'm just going to pray once again, and then we'll stand for our song of reflection. Father God, we thank you once again uh, for this time. Thank you for this text. I pray, God, that as we go from here, Lord, as we reflect upon your name, would we experience your, your presence, would we experience your power, would we experience the peace that transcends all understanding in our lives, the peace that only you can bring. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand for our song of reflection? <laughs>